we are in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So let me catch you up to speed in case you've missed it. Um, we, have, we got to the life of David, young David, the anointed future king in chapter 16. Uh, he is the anointed future king. King Saul is still reigning as king, but he's the anointed king by Samuel. He will rule, he will reign. Chapter 17, he slays Goliath. Chapter 18, the women are singing his praises in the streets. This infuriates Saul. You know, they're hearing that song, the bestseller on the Shalom podcast, whatever. Like, David has slayed, or Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. They're loving that. Uh, Saul is furious. He begins to really begin to despise David in his heart, pursue after David. David develops a friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan's the son of Saul. He could have been the king. He would have been the king, but he, he lays it down at David's feet and says, here's my armor. Here's my robe. You're the one true king. They have a friendship going there. Uh, you see this pursuit of David in exile, really in chapter 21 and on. He's just been pursued time and time again. There's these little moments where just God intervenes for David. And last week, if you're with us, you remember, we, we saw how David began to really seek after God. Um, he's like, Saul, you're going to seek after me. I'm going to seek after God. He begins to seek God's counsel, his wisdom, his direction, the heart of God. And we ended last week in chapter 24, where David had this moment. He's in the cave. Saul's in the cave as well. He doesn't know David's in there. He walks in to use the bathroom, essentially. David is there. He has an opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't. He cuts off a piece of his robe. Then as soon as Saul leaves, he's like, Saul, look. And he shows the robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And they have this kind of exchange where Saul's actually brought to tears He's like, you are more innocent, more righteous than I. And basically, he vows, and it's something, but he doesn't keep it, to not pursue or kill David. He's like, just have mercy on me and my family, David. You, you are that one true king. You, you should be that. But that's kind of like a little pause in the story. So here's what's going on. Chapter 25, there's peace for like a moment, for just a moment, between David and King Saul. There's peace for a moment. In chapter 26, Saul picks right back up. Next week, we'll see this. He picks right back up, ready to, to kill David again. But chapter 25, we're just doing one chapter today. Can you believe that? We're not doing two like we did in like the last few weeks. Um, in chapter 25, this is a weird one. This is a weird story. This is not your classic children's Bible story. This is not going to be something that, like, as we read, as I read to my kids, like the Bible stories, you don't see the story of Nabal and Abigail. You don't see this story, all right? This is kind of like a weird, like, timeout on the storyline between David in exile and Saul pursuing. And really, this week was interesting for me, just reading this, thinking about this. Even the commentator's like, yeah, it's weird. This is just a weird story. It's kind of like one of those stories, you're like, this is going to be difficult. But here's what I love about this story we're going to see. Abigail, who we're going to see in just a moment, read about her. She is used by God to save David from essentially self-sabotage. She's used by God to stop David from making a terrible, terrible mistake. A mistake that would have made him on the level of Saul. Uh, Abigail is used in a mighty profound way to intervene and basically course correct David's path. And so even though the story of Nabal and Abigail, husband and wife, it's not a really well-known story. It's probably no other church right now doing 1 Samuel 25 this morning, I'm guessing. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a beautiful story of how someone can intervene and stop someone from making a terrible, terrible life-changing mistake. How we need Abigails in the life of the church. We're going to see that. We're going to need this. Abigail just means the joy of the father or the father's joy. Abba, like Abba, father. And the idea of the, the, the joy of the father. Nabal, her husband, just means fool. And that, we're going to see this compared and contrasted. Here's a fool and here's the joy of the father in some ways. Just her character, um, her mentality, her mindset, her wisdom, her discernment. 
and we're going to see her really change the path of David. Um, so we're introduced to Nabal and Abigail. You guys ready for this story? Yes. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray and uh, we will jump into our text. Let's do that. Father, we just want to thank you, God, for your word. As thorough, as complete, as sometimes strange as it is, you know it's beautiful, it's necessary, it's profitable. Lord, in some ways I feel like we would never get to these stories, but we thank you that we get to. God, we don't want to overlook this. You found it necessary to write about this, to show us this. Lord, I'm very thankful for the Abigails who have wisdom and tact and humility and hospitality, that they are able to show that to others to just persuade others back to your heart. God, help us to learn from this. Help us to receive from this. Make us more like you in this process. We ask that your word, which is like a mirror, that it would just reveal things that you need to correct, mindsets that you need to just speak into, Lord, that Jesus, we would be more like you in this process. So God, we ask that your spirit would be in this place, that whether or not people look at this and say, is this relevant to me? Jesus, I so believe you want to speak and move. And so I ask God that you'd remove distraction, fear, concerns about the weak, and that your word would wash over us and renew us. Thank you, Jesus, that we can come here. We can sing, we can pray, we can look to you, we can be guided by your word. And we ask that your spirit would just produce life in us as we do this. And we just thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I remember this event so clearly. Uh, it was my senior year. We went up to Green Valley. Green Valley is like this little kind of a conference center that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa owned in the mountains. Um, Green Valley is like in the Big Bear Mountain kind of area. Um, beautiful campsite that they own, so many fun things to do. Like it's an insane, an insane piece of property. Just tons of fun stuff to do. So it's my senior year. Uh, they brought all the seniors up there. It's kind of like a I don't know, last hurrah, spiritual retreat. Let's get away with all the seniors. So I'm, going, I'm attending Calvary Chapel High School. We go to Green Valley. I've, Green Valley, I forget what month it was. It was like maybe February, March, April, May, whatever. But it's kind of like our last time with everyone, with all our friends, all our buds. You had a girl section way far on one side of like the mountain, and then you had the guy, the guy cabins. And uh, you can imagine it's basically like 25 bunk beds on one side and then a bathroom, like 25 bunk beds. Uh, you can imagine what it was like to be with 50 guys in bunks for like three nights. Uh, it was, smelled amazing, by the way. Um, but I just remember it so clearly. It was, it was like, you know, nonstop fights, nonstop wrestling moments. It was just madness. I mean, I don't even know if there's a leader, to be honest, in the dorm. I have no idea where the leaders were. Uh, but you have like 50 of us in one side and then the other. It's crazy. And I remember there was, uh, during that time, there was like, everyone was losing things out of their bags. Like I brought Pop-Tarts, I brought food, like it's gone. Like everyone's like getting things stolen out of their bag. And one night I'm there, I don't know what, I don't know what was going on, but I remember being there, I was on the bed, I was like reading or something, I'm alone. And I hear someone come in and I like peek my head up, you know, from the, the bunks and I look up and I see this kid, Stephen Thompson. Oh, I remember him clearly. Uh, I remember him rummaging through some like, bags. He was in bunks. I'm like, that's not his bunk. And he's rummaging through bags. And I was just like, watch. He had no idea anyone was in there. And I was just watching. I see him stealing stuff. And I'm like, aha, it's you. Like, I knew it. Like, because everyone's wondering, who is the person? And he seemed like, freak out. He's like, I was just, they told me to grab this for them. Oh, my God. Oh, no, they didn't. You know, he starts like, like lying, covered up his tracks right away. And I, I, he had like a ton of stuff right before. And like, as I confront him and talk to him, you know, people start walking in. And I'm like, you guys want to know? We all wanted to know who's been stealing from us. It's been Steven, right? 
Now, this is not good. Stephen's mad. I'm mad. Everyone's like, huh? What? He's lying. Just is a liar. Oh, he called me a liar? Like, it was like one of those moments. And I remember, you know, this was like one of those moments. He, he starts like getting so mad. We're all friends. We're 17 years old, just filled with testosterone and, and, you know, Gatorade. I don't know. It's crazy. It's nonsense. And he starts running at me. He starts charging at me. And I'm on top of the bunk, and I'm like, you know, my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to flinch. Like, this guy's going to do nothing to me. He grabs me, like, rips me off the top bunk. My leg gets stuck in, like, that bunk thing. And I'm, like, dangling. It was bad. And I get out, and, like, he, run, like, he runs away. And I just remember, like, I don't know, murderous rage running through me. I've never felt like that, like... That was just an intensity because he's stealing, he's lying, he ripped me, it's in front of like peers. I was like, Rah! and I remember like charging at him and it was like, it's about to go down. I'm like, I don't care whatever happens to me. Like we are, it's going down right now. And then a good friend, his name was Reed Kays. This kid was stronger than both of us combined. <laughs> I'm running at him. He just grabs me and stops me. And he just like bear hugs me and I'm furious. And I don't know how, he was like this redhead kid and you know, redhead, they're just strong. I don't know. He was just so strong. And he's holding me and he's like bear hugging me. And he just keeps like, he's like, he's like with like even though I'm freaking out, he's like, "Hey, it's not worth it. It's not worth it." And he's like saying, "Don't stoop to his level." And I wanted to break free, but Reed was stronger than again, both of us. And he just like, "Calm down, calm down." And I just remember that moment. Like, I don't even know if I would have gotten to him. Probably guaranteed, I would not have walked my graduation. It's one of those things in my mind. Like, we're two months away from walking. We're two months away from graduation, and I'm very thankful. Like looking back, Reed just grabbed me. It's not worth it. What are you doing? This is not you. He's like saying that, grabbing me. And like, help me calm down because I couldn't move, really. And I remember that so clearly. And it's funny because Stephen Thompson, I hated that kid. That was just a punk kid. He's a pastor now as well. I don't know. That's just how God works. <laughs> it's true. It's just, I don't know. That's how the Lord does things, I guess. Um, <laughs> seen him years later. They're still like, hey, <laughs> good to see you, man. It's just funny. Um, but looking back at that, I go, wow, I'm very thankful for people like the, the Reeds out there who stopped me from making, I think, a terrible choice. Something that would have changed my graduation, my trajectory, and, and just many things. Here's what Abigail is doing for David. David is about to make a terrible choice. He's about to kill her husband and all the men of, of Nabal's servants. He's about to do something that Saul would do. We're going to read the story, but David is so angry. He's so filled with rage. He's ready to go to war with some, some shepherds, essentially. And you have Abigail who intervenes. And through her hospitality through her wisdom, through her tact, she stops David from making a terrible choice. Really, and that's what the title today is. It's Saved from Self-Sabotage. Saved from Self-Sabotage. We need people like this who will help save us from ourselves. She even points this out. David, we're going to see, acknowledges this. And David's going to say, You've, you saved me from trying to find salvation in my own hands. I wanted to save myself. This is a battle I thought I should fight. I've been a man who's let the Lord, in a sense, fight my battles. And I was about to start fighting my own battles. And he's just very grateful for Abigail. She intervenes in a powerful way. And here's what I want to look at today, because this is one of those stories preparing this week. I feel like the Lord, thankfully, like by Friday, Saturday, like, what is this? What do we have here? Um, and I feel like the Lord helped develop this in some beautiful ways. But we see within Abigail some characteristics that led to this salvation for David. It would have, again, changed everything about him. So here's the idea. Uh, what we're going to look at and how we're going to break down our text today is hospitality instead of greed, wisdom instead of foolishness, and salvation instead of destruction. We're going to see these characteristics in Abigail. She's extremely hospitable. Her husband is not. She's extremely wise. Her husband is not. She basically, through those two characteristics, offers salvation instead of what would have been destruction of David. But we're going to see it's going to be the destruction of her husband. 
Now, spoiler alert, David's going to marry Abigail. Just got to let you know that. There's some commentary at the end of this book, because we're going to see, I'll just kind of give you the ending. Nabal's going to die. She's going to remarry David. Okay. We're told that David's wife, Michael, remember he's married to Michael, the daughter of King Saul. Well, during this time, King Saul gave David's wife away to another man. So David's wife has been given away. Saul's like, you're not going to be married to my daughter at some point during this whole exile thing. So David doesn't have a wife. She's married to another man, and we're going to see that he's going to marry Abigail. Just letting you know the ending, all right? Um, But let's just hop in. I want to read the story. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Our first point is hospitality instead of greed. Let's read verse 1. Now, verse 1 is kind of like a change of the story as well. So just bear with me. Verse 1. It says this. Now Samuel died. (laughs) All right? Listen to that. It's a big deal. Remember, he just spared King Saul in the cave. Now, verse 1, Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Just stop there really quick. Because this is like a side story as well. Uh, David just spares King Saul. He, we see that Saul actually acknowledged him for the first time out of his mouth. Like, you're the king. Like, we know that you're the anointed one. You're the chosen one. Now Samuel died. Samuel anointed David. Samuel knew this. Saul never really understood this. As soon as Saul understands this, Samuel dies. Um, Samuel, obviously, think about this. This book is written. This is called 1 Samuel. We're going to read 2 Samuel. I mean, in a sense, this is an incredible man with an incredible legacy, and now it's, it's done. It's over. It says Samuel died. Samuel, you guys know this, probably know this, but in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there's all these men and women who did great things for God. We call it the hall of faith because by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, Rahab, by faith, Sarah, and all of these stories are combined to talk about men and women of faith. Samuel obviously makes the hall of faith. Just really quick commentary about him. Hebrews 11:32. it says, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. That's what Samuel was a part of. That's his heritage. Subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. Here's Samuel. It's done. But here's what I love. If you notice this in verse one, notice it says this. Now Samuel died. Look at the end of verse one. It says, then David rose. Samuel dies. David rises up. The idea of that, obviously, is like it doesn't, the work of God does not end because Samuel died, right? It's not Samuel's dead. It's all over. Samuel died, David arises. It's just this idea that like <clears throat> the baton is still passed on. God is still moving. Despite maybe an, a change of season, a death of a leader, God always has people that he will raise up. God is so good, he's so faithful. And I also want to point this out because we need, we need men. Like we need that next generation, we need it passed on. But know what I find fascinating to me, at least like in studying and thinking about the story. Uh, how did the first Samuel begin? How did this book begin? Did it begin with Samuel? No, who did it begin with? It began with his mom, right? It began with Hannah. The book of 1 Samuel begins with this, this woman of faith. If you read 1 Samuel 2 and you read her song to the Lord, I mean, it's just filled with wisdom, with knowledge, with insight, with commitment to God. 1 Samuel begins with like this matriarch of the faith. It begins with a woman and then we see this man, Samuel. And I believe like Samuel's dead, chapter 25, and it begins with this woman, Abigail. And we see David's legacy continue. And just reading that and just thinking through that this week, I'm like, wow, I just love, Samuel dies, and now the the emphasis is going to be on Abigail. It's like, and that's how the book began with a woman. We see Samuel's legacy end. It begins with a woman again, and it passes on with David as well. The point of this to me being how, how much more so do we still to this day need patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith? Like we need men and women 
of the faith. We need both. We see this with Hannah. We see this with Abigail. She's the joy of the father. Now let's read this insane story. All right, Uh, verse two. So here we go. We'll jump in. Verse two. And there's a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the, man, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David uh, sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. David's probably not going because he doesn't want to intimidate the guy. Verse six, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they're in Carmel. Ask uh, your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servant. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat <coughs> that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come, from, uh, who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and he came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of, the, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. All right, this story, really quick. Here's what's going on. Uh, you have two characters that are being introduced for the first time. So remember, side note, the story of Saul, David, they're at peace for a little bit. We'll see them pick this back up in chapter 26. But there's a side story of Nabal and Abigail. Now, Nabal's described in a very detailed way, and even more, we'll see like, how he's described more. Abigail's described in a very detailed way. They give us a lot of you know, descriptions about these two. We'll put them up here just so you're going to see again. Nabal's wealthy. He's wealthy. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He's wealthy. He's foolish. He's greedy. He's prideful, as we're going to see. He's harsh and badly behaved. That's how it describes this guy. Not a great guy. Then now here's Abigail. Here's how it describes her. She's discerning, wise, hospitable, and beautiful. Opposites really do attract, right? Like when you read this, you go, how was she with him? I think that's like a question we like everyone asks. Like, well, don't forget the first word. He was wealthy. Kidding. Um, but you look at this story and it probably has to do with arranged marriage. Let's be honest. <clears throat> but you look at the story and you go, here's this foolish guy. And here's this wise, discerning, beautiful woman. She's hospitable. She's caring. It's, it's crazy how a couple of times how it mentions her discernment. She's incredibly wise. Now, it's kind of setting us up for the rest of the story because it's going to be comparing and contrasting basically Nabal with his wife, Abigail. It's, it's comparing and contrasting. Look at the differences. And here's what we see essentially. Um, understand this. This story, when you read it at first, go, David seems kind of crazy here. He's like, hey, can you just give us a few sheep? We've been taking care of your guys. We've been with the shepherds. They've lost nothing. Uh, we'd like a few sheep for the feast. Give us whatever you want to give us. And the guy's like, who are you? Who is the son of Jesse? Like, who is this guy? And then David's like, hey, everybody, strap on your swords. Let's go. Now, it kind of seems intense of David, which it is, but understand like the cultural moment, their context, especially in the Middle East, hospitality is a huge thing today. Back then, it was massive. 
Also, there's this idea of it's a feast day. We'll share with those who are in need. This is important. For those who are wealthy, share with those who are poor. He's a Calebite. He's Jewish. That means he's like a great, great, great grandson of Caleb. Caleb, who was a very godly man. You know, Joshua and Caleb, the two men who had faith to enter the promised land. So he's a Jewish guy. He knows their story. He knows their history. He obviously knows David because he's pointing out how he basically dissented from Saul. He's aware of what's going on. But the idea is he was, he was lacking hospitality. David's like, ask, we've been taking care of it. Now, here's what's crazy. We'll see this said twice. But twice, David's like, we've been with your men and they've lost nothing. Like, that's incredible. You think about managing 4,000 animals. He's like, they've never been lost, stolen. No animal has taken them away. Twice, he points us out how nothing is gone. Like, they're batting 1,000. And he's like, the servants actually will even say to Nabal, their master, it's like, they'll say, this guy, David, built a wall around us. Like, whenever him and his men were with us, we were safe. Nothing happened to us. And the cultural context would say, Nabal, in a sense, owes David. He has like an obligation to provide for David. This is just, even if he didn't, there's a sense of like hospitality that he's completely lacking. It still doesn't justify David's decision to go, let's strap on swords. But you can kind of see the anger. And then in, in this honor-shame culture, in this moment, where he's like, who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now he's dishonoring David. He's dishonoring this anointing on his life. The fact that he will be the next king. His wife gets this, but he doesn't get this. And you're kind of being set up for a look at this guy who just lacks all hospitality. Now, here's the problem with David. David's gonna, about to answer this fool by becoming a fool. David's about to answer and respond in a foolish way. Proverbs 26.4, listen to this. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. This is about to happen to David. He's mad at this fool. He's going to answer a fool according to his folly. Don't do that. He's about to make that mistake. But thankfully, there's Abigail, who's going to intervene in just a moment. And just to point this out and understand that this is, like, this is not a far-fetched thing. Like David's expectation of hospitality is not a crazy idea. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, or chapter 17 says, If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Like this is understandable to be hospitable to David, but he's not. Now we're going to see his wife who comes on the scene and she's just incredibly hospitable. Now I have to like ask this because David was so kind and gracious and like patient in a sense, like he's protecting Nabal and he's, his kindness is meant or met with harshness. I don't know if your kindness to someone, if your love to someone has ever met, met with harshness, how do you respond in that moment? When you're kind, when you're good, how do you respond when someone does not match your kindness with kindness? but they match your kindness maybe with greed like this guy or with just hate or slander or dishonoring him. And David's about to get stooped to his level. David's about to do what Saul would do. Saul would say the same thing. We just read about Saul doing this kind of stuff. All right, let's go guys. We're going to slaughter these people. And you see that David's about to be on that same level as Saul. But again, Abigail intervenes. Let's keep reading. Read through verse 13. Let's pick up verse uh, 14 here. Verse 14. It says, but one of the young men told Abigail, So I'm very thankful for this servant. So one of the young men, they told Abigail, Nabal's wife, he said, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And listen to this phrase. He railed at them. Our master railed at them. So if you ever use that, that's where it comes from the Bible. He railed at them. The master, Nabal did. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, 
all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. He's so arrogant. He's so worthless. We can't even talk to him. He won't listen. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste, and she took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Verse 20, and as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Stop there. Do you notice that this covenant David's making He's basically saying like, God, do so to me and more so if I don't slay all these males. This is exactly what Saul said. Saul made the same kind of oaths twice. David is like entering that level of Saul. Like, whoa, watch out, David. It's really crazy. Because you actually think about this. David just spared Saul who's chasing after him. And now it's this thing, like this guy is causing David to actually, he would never take the life of Saul, but I'll take Nabal's life. It's crazy because David just had a big victory right? He had a big victory by not slaying Saul. He had a big victory by reconciliation for a moment. But this little thing got to him. Isn't that crazy? Song of Solomon talks about how it's the little foxes that spoil the harvest. It's this idea that like they had a, you know, he's talking about in that context of marriage or relationships. When you think about this, this is so applicable. He's saying when it comes to a harvest, when it comes to a field, like it has tons of, like, tons of fruit or tons of whatever, and there's a harvest you're about to have, what takes out the harvest? It's usually not some massive meteor, big type of thing. It's a little fox or two that gets into the harvest and spoils and ruins the harvest. And this is what's happening to David, essentially. He just had this massive victory. He didn't slay Saul, Saul who's after his life. But it's this little thing It's Nabal's lack of hospitality that really gets under his skin, where he's like ready. He's making a vow. He's grabbing his men. He's ready to fight. He's ready to end all the male's lives. He is absolutely ready. But what is Abigail doing? Abigail sends her young men ahead. She sends the servants ahead, and she just has a feast prepared for him. I mean, she's so hospitable. You see like the five sheep, the cakes of figs and raisins. I mean, this doesn't sound good to us, but it was delicious. I'm sure to that, right? Like this is incredible. And you see is really what we're going to see. It's this hospitality from Abigail that absolutely won David's heart. Listen, we need to know this. When it comes to our enemies, when it comes to reaching someone who's just angry, it's crazy how much God uses hospitality to win someone to Jesus. I can't stress enough how, how important hospitality has been always to the church. When you think about the church in the book of Acts, and you think about just like the idea of Jesus even walking with the disciples, inviting himself over, or having conversations with people. It's crazy to think how hospitality is just a huge part of, of being a follower of Jesus. It just is. There's something about hospitality that is massive. There's something about when your enemies don't respond with kindness, you respond with love and grace and mercy. David, I feel like once knew this and is forgetting this. It says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says, listen to this, uh, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. David's doing this. He's forgetting this. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind. Listen, God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. See, God will be kind to Nabal. 
He's, he's kind to the ungrateful and evil. David's losing sight of this. And you have an Abigail who's like, let me just win his heart back, in a sense, by just being completely hospitable. Let's send as much as we can ahead. And I think this is so important. I don't, I don't want to move on from this. Because when I'm reading this text, I'm going, the anger stems from a lack of hospitality, and the solution is an answer with hospitality. And I do think that, that here's something we're doing. When we do Alpha, right, in some ways this might sound silly, but we're just trying to like, provide a space where we just have a meal we have a couple people that are incredible that help us even just put little designs and details on the tables. Why? We just want to make it hospitable. We want to say we care about the details. We want to create an environment where you can come in and doesn't feel like it's a school cafeteria. Every Sunday, like, look at this. It's crazy. It's so, so funny to me. Whenever we tear down, people are like, I had no idea this room looked like this. I'm like, I know. It's kind of messed up without all this stuff. Why? We want to create a, a space or a moment. We want to create like a hospitable space where people can kind of come and hear and not be distracted by the manatees on the walls or whatever. I don't know. But we want to create that space. The, the, the point of this is hospitality has been so important in just the church's life, in the church's existence. We used to be really good, I believe, at inviting people over, going over, knowing the people who live next to us, loving, yes, on the church, but also people who are unchurched. I feel like that was the strength of the church early on. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, there's this list of how to love. And listen to this, Hebrews 13 too. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality for, to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This verse, kind of pointing back to Genesis 18, where uh, Abraham entertains these men who happen to be angels, then Lot entertains the same men, chapter 19, who happen to be angels. But don't, let me just point out this verse. He says, do not neglect, do not neglect, just to show hospitality. This truly is, I think, a lost art. This word hospitality, I find fascinating. If you want to like write this down, look at this. Hospitality to strangers. This word hospitality in the Greek there in Hebrews 13 is philoxenia. Okay, now think about this, right? Phileo, we know that's like brotherly love, stranger love. It's like you love the stranger. You love your brother. Xenia is the idea of like that stranger or that foreigner. We know the phrase xenophobia, right? Xenophobia, the idea of like a lack of love for the stranger, the outsider. Sometimes it's used towards maybe the immigrant. It's just used to like that outsider, the other. There's xenophobia, but then there's philoxenia. Hear this. He says, do not neglect to show philoxenia to strangers. Show love to strangers. Show love to the other. Don't despise the other. Don't despise the outsider. Don't despise the, the stranger. Love them. There is a call to Christians for us to say, how, do, how are we doing when it comes to loving the other? Because sometimes there is this us versus them mentality. It's this group, this ideology, this mindset, and we're on this side. But can we actually, because they, they might despise us, but do we, do we kind of face despisement with despising? Or do we go, hey, I, I know you, you don't like me or like us or like our worldview, but we're going to love you. We're going to have love for the other. It's not this us versus them. It's saying, it's crazy how so often God has turned strangers into saints. We were once strangers. We were once foreigners. We were once outsiders. Now we're sons. And it's crazy. This idea of hospitality, I so believe God cares greatly about, cares so greatly about. And when you read even the garden in the very beginning, why did God make everything good and beautiful? I think God creates a space, this welcoming, warm environment, this warm space. I think hospitality matters to God. I want to read this verse out of Deuteronomy. Just hear me out. Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. It says, for, listen, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Listen, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. 
He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God was like, don't forget the strangers because you were once a stranger. Don't forget the outsider because you were once the outsider. And I think for us as a church today, like if we could grow in love, it's probably love towards the other, love towards the stranger, love towards the outsider, this phylloxenia. So how do we love the other? And this is challenging. Let me say this. I thought, sometimes I still think, this is not good probably. I'm like, I think me and my wife are pretty hospitable. Sometimes I'm like, you know, we're pretty good. We have people over. We like to spend time. We'll spend money. We'll hang out. We'll have, like, we have to do that on different people, different groups. Like, we have to have people over. But then when you read about biblical hospitality, I'm like, oh, wow, we're really far from that. Like, when you read Luke 14, and you read about Jesus saying, hey, hey, don't, don't invite people over who can also invite you over. Don't, don't do that. What about the, what about the other? What about the, the poor, the mangled, the paralyzed, the ones outside? Like, invite them over. Invite people over who could never pay you back. Invite people over who could never, you know, render this good for good. Just invite that, that, that other. I, I mean, there is something, obviously, about hot, like when you read Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 17, and God is like, I love the stranger. You were once the stranger. Don't forget to love the stranger. Nabal is not loving the stranger. Abigail is going to love the stranger, the stranger in their land, that is David. And we're going to see how hospitality won his heart, but I can't, like, we can't pass over this, I don't think, very quickly, because I think for us, how do we actually win people? You know, there's like that book, like, how to win friends and influence people. Like, this is like how to win enemies. How do we win enemies? Hospitality. There's just something about that. And I understand this could look different on, like, where you live. Some of you are like, uh, I don't have a place. I'm like, I'm like 15 years old. I don't know. Some of you can't, like, host. I get that. Some of you go, no, we're in this season, but I have no idea. But how do you still go, okay, but we're going to fight for hospitality. We're going we're gonna to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, as the author of Hebrews says. There's something powerful about this. Listen to what Joshua Jip says. I want to read this. He says, hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. The primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. The practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who are previously either alienated, at enmity, or simply unknown to one another. How do we create these spaces? To, you're a stranger to your guest. We're going to treat you like this. Not just your guest, now your friend. Again, I, church, if there's something we could grow in. You know, I, I've heard so often in punks like the Alpha season, I don't know non-believers, I don't know many. We've got to work on that. <laughs> We got we to become friends to our neighbors. We got to know their name. Invite them over. Talk to them. This is so important. How do we win people who are far from God? Honestly, create a hospitable environment. Go, how can we go the extra? He's like, they don't deserve it. They hate my guts. David and Abel, we have David and Abigail. It's like, okay, we got to learn from this moment. We got to learn from this time. Listen, our God is so hospitable. I want to read one more thing from Joshua Jib. I thought it was so good. Here's what he said. He says, God's hospitality is extended to his lost, broken, needy, and often stigmatized people. This divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus, the divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, and strangers, and thereby draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. We serve a hospital God Let's be hospitable. We have to fight for this. One more thing, I just, just in studying for this and reading this and just kind of, I don't know about you, but this is one of those things that kind of gets your heart a little bit. This is one of those like, how am I doing? 
I don't, I, there's very few people, it's like 10 out of 10, hospitality, like, this is them. This is great. It's hard. But this, again, was the backbone of the early church. They went to each other's homes, they had fellowship, they hung out, they laughed, they prayed. This was like the backbone of the church was hospitality. And one thing Henry Nowen said that stuck with me, he says, our society, listen, our society seems to be increasingly, increasingly full of fearful, defensive, and aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do harm. But still, that is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Can we turn an enemy into a guest? I'm just going to say, I don't know what the Lord wants to do or how to apply this in some ways, but like I would say, church, could we get better at opening our homes? Not kind of saying it's us versus them, their mindset, their belief, their lifestyle, their choice of living. Sure, we might not agree with it, but can we still love? Can we still befriend? Can through that come transformation where it's like, wow, I've actually never had this happen. I've mentioned this before, but I'll briefly mention this. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, her story is so profound. You can watch her videos, read her books. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, but essentially she was... Um, this woman professor, I, th- I think at um, Syracuse, Syracuse University, she taught like women in liberal arts studies. And she was a feminist. She was a lesbian. She's a lesbian relationship. She shares her story of how basically this pastor read her article, tearing apart the church in the newspaper. He said, can we have you and your partner over to our house? You can read, it's a long story, but over a year, they came over every week after week after week. She said, the pastor never uh, talked to us about the Bible, nothing. We had dinner, we laughed, we found things in common. But she's like one year plus into the, coming over every week. She's like, I only agreed to go to this pastor's house because I wanted more ammo against the church. I want to go to his house and find all the flaws and write about my articles. It's the only reason why, she says, like the only reason why I went to this pastor's house was basically to find flaws with the church. But she went week after week after week. She ends up becoming friends with them. The pastor says, can I just give you this book? This book has hugely influenced our lives. It's called the Bible. I know you know of it, but it's in changed our lives. Would you at least read it? She shares her story of how she started reading and reading and reading. She's going through the gospels and she goes, this Jesus guy seems to make sense. I kind of like him. I like what he's about. I like who he's for. I like what he's saying and doing. And then she says, look, Jesus defined marriage as one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage and looks at her partner and says, is it possible he could be right? She's like, how dare you even think that way? Don't even think that way. And it led her on to this journey, not of becoming a heterosexual, but it led her on this journey of becoming a follower of Jesus. And she becomes a follower of Jesus. And then God, she, for her and her story only, it's not everyone's story, but God begins to change her desires and wants and things. And then she eventually starts dating a guy and they get married. And now he's a pastor. And her story is so profound to me. She has, I think, tenure at Syracuse. I mean, this is someone who's deeply, deeply rooted in her way of thinking, in her lifestyle. And what changed her to maybe being open to the idea that Jesus is who he said he is? What, what, what started that? Hospitality. And so that's why she wrote, the gospel comes with a house key. The point of bringing that story up is saying, man, I don't know if we understand the power of hospitality. I don't know if like this, uh, this is used to be something I think the early church was really good at. Let's fight for this. Dable's ready to fight over a lack of hospitality, but he's also gonna be changed dramatically because of this woman, Abigail, and her hospitality. You guys with me? Number two is this. It's her wisdom instead of foolishness. And we're gonna keep reading the story, but let's keep reading. Uh, number two, wisdom instead of foolishness. Verse 23. So she brings this stuff to him. David's ready to fight. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey. And listen to this. Here's what she does. Here's her wisdom. She fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, that's her husband, uh, for as his name is. 
So as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. Oh gosh, it's not good. And folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. I didn't, I didn't talk to them. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because, listen, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. You haven't done it yet. And from saving with your own hand. And now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men and who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. David is going to make you a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She's talking about him. My Lord, you, David, you're fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you, prince of Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with, with my Lord, then remember me, your servant. I want you to hear this. This is like crazy. When you look at this, you go, she didn't need to do this. Like she didn't need to do this. And, and here's what's interesting. Wisdom isn't always about what you maybe need to do. It's like what was necessary. Meaning it's like you could make the arguments like uh, David's in the fault, her husband's in the fault. Notice how she approaches him, how she begins. Actually, she makes a lot of references to him, his future kingdom, the promises of God to him. She references the idea of a sling. She's very aware of David fighting Goliath. She uses that terminology to like kind of bring up these old stories. That she's, she knows her history. She knows David. She comes humbly. It's unbelievable what she's doing. Let me say it this way. It's obviously comparing and contrasting Nabal with Abigail. Nabal's foolish. She's like, that's his name. I have no idea if the, if the parents saw baby Nabal and was like, oh, this is a Nabal. He's a fool. Probably not. It probably became his name over time. Like everyone knew him as Nabal. It might've been just something behind his back. His name means fool or folly or foolish. The men said this about him. This is now his name, Nabal. He goes by Nabal. Uh, if to the Jewish culture, the idea of being a fool was Psalm 14. It's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. He lived as if there was no God. He's a fool. He's Nabal. Now it's being contrasted with this woman who has discretion. She's wise. She's discerning. She's tactful. She navigates these nuances. It's very fascinating to me saying, look at her wisdom. Look at his foolishness. He dismisses. He doesn't show hospitality. He dishonors who is David. And she's like, let me now honor. Let me undo what my husband did. In a sense, you could say, but she's dishonoring your husband. She's about to save her husband's life and her life and David's life, essentially. It's, just, it's crazy the approach she's taking on this. Now, I want to say this. When it comes to wisdom, let's talk about wisdom for a second. Um, no one really drifts into wisdom, okay? It's not like, you are, it's not like you're, you're kind of your natural bent is wise. It's just, no one has that default position of just, I'm just, I'm just wise. Actually, Proverbs says you're a fool if you think that. No one's like default position is wise. I've never seen someone like drift over time. Like, I, like what happened? I don't know. Just didn't really do anything. I just got wiser. Like, that doesn't happen. Uh, uh, Job actually talks about this. Job called out some men in his life, and he says, you were a fool when you're young, therefore you're a fool when you're old. Just because you're old or have age doesn't mean you're wise. Job talks about that. Proverbs talks about that. We honor the elder. We honor those who are older. But he's saying, don't assume because, just because you're foolish and you're young doesn't guarantee you'll be wise because you're old. So how do you get wisdom? Like, how do you really get this? What does this look like? Let me just give you a simple answer really quick. James 1.5, you might know this, but it's so profound. It says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, what? 
Let him ask God who gives generously or liberally to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. There is something about this. I remember sitting years ago in a meeting and the pastor's like talking and talking about wisdom and the question was asked, how do you get wisdom? And everyone's like, read books. Like, yeah. Like have life experiences. Yeah, that's true too. Everyone's answering. But then there's this response of, well, ask. How do you get wisdom? Ask. Ask in faith. God will give liberally and generously. He will do it, but you got to ask in faith. There's something about also, why is that? Why is that? There's something about saying, God, I, have, I actually am teachable. I'm asking because I know I don't have it. I'm assuming this isn't my default position. I'm actually going to because like, I know I need it. And you see, I, I, this, again, no one really drifts into this. This is not our default position. But here's one point out with Abigail. Abigail is very aware of David. She's very aware of his accomplishments. She's aware of the promises that God made to him. She calls him my Lord, my Lord which is fascinating. She acknowledges him as king. She acknowledges him as like over the land. And she's the one who has her life being threatened from David. In some ways, it's just, and it's foolishness. David's acting a fool. Her husband's acting a fool. And you have her being really wise. And I just think this is so profound. There comes points in time where you go, you know what? It doesn't make sense what David's doing, but the only way to kind of put out this fire is I'm going to be really humble, really, you know, um, nuanced. I'm going to answer in such a way that's going to honor him and explain the situation, but also not sound like I'm defending this. And she was brilliant in her, her approach. Really quick, I just want to put some phrases up. Look at these phrases. My, uh, oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She's taking that in. She's taking it and like, what? Obviously, this is not on you. But she's saying it's on me. There's humility there. Um, this, she knew, like, I need to approach this to kind of put out this fire this way. Verse 26, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving you with your own hand. She's like, David, she's basically pleading to his conscience saying, you haven't shed blood yet. You haven't saved yourself yet. You don't need to keep going this, this direction. I don't know if you've ever had a friend come to you and say, you're about to make a terrible choice. Blood that might be on your hands. You're about to make a terrible choice. I love you. You haven't made that choice yet. Don't do it. You might be wanting to, you might be thinking about it, but I'm coming to you now. You don't have to do this. Listen, don't we need Abigails? We need Abigails. People are like, hey, you haven't done this decision yet. You haven't committed this act yet. I know you've been thinking about it. I know you've been wanting to. I know that you feel like this is the only option for you, but no, blood's not on your hands yet. You don't have to get into this. I'm very thankful for men and women who've done this for me, and who you've done this for. Maybe people have done this for you. It's like, hey, you haven't made that choice yet. Keep going. Here's at verse 28. She says, please forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord will certainly make my Lord as a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. She's like, you've been fighting the Lord's battles. Don't try to fight this one. You've been fighting, you, you've been fighting the Lord's battles. And she's basically like, you feel the guilt like in David of like, yeah, this is not the Lord's battle, what you're doing, killing Nabal. This is not the Lord's. Don't try to justify this. Don't try to excuse this. And it's like, you could see how she's presenting this. A couple more things. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be, uh, shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. I know God's with you, David. Your life's gonna be preserved. He is with you. She's speaking life over him. Verse 29, in the lives your enemies shall be a sling as from the hollow of a sling. Like she's basically using this terminology because David, who once fought the Lord's battles with a sling, he once fought the Lord's battles with a sling. And now he's trying to take it into his own hands. And she's, she's basically calling upon the story of the sling. It's like, don't do this. You know, you know the Lord will do this for you. He'll, he'll sling your enemies away. You don't need to do this. 
And you can imagine, like, David's like, where have I, I've gone so far from God. Like, in my youth, I served God. I used a sling. And now as it's like, as I've kind of aged, maybe I got bitter over time. Maybe the Lord's bringing me back to, like, that youthful, beautiful state of just, like, I trust you, Lord. You know, we're not called to be uh, child, like, like, childish, but we're called to be childlike. And there's that idea with David, of like, oh, I gotta get back to that sling idea. I gotta get back to, like, the Lord's gonna fight this battle for me. He'll sing my enemy, enemies away. She keeps going, verse 30, 31. When the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all my good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince of Israel, listen, my Lord shall have no cause or grief of pains or conscience for having shed blood without cause. She says, when the Lord has done this, you won't have this sense of guilt on your hands, this blood on your hands. You didn't save yourself. She's just constantly appealing to him. Then she kind of sounds like that thief on the cross. Verse 31, when the Lord has dealt with you, remember me. Remember your servant. Just remember me. When you're the king, when you're ruling and reigning, just remember me. She comes across so wise, so discerning, so humble, so tactful. It's, it's incredible when you read this. This is how to not just win friends and influence people. It's how to win your enemies. She's like, let me show you how to do this. So here's her wisdom compared to her husband's foolishness. Now we read David's response. All right, we're just going to read the rest of this. Let's keep going. Number three, we're going to see now salvation comes instead of destruction. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hands. That was the danger. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, Abigail, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, right? It's that shearing time. He's holding a feast like a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. <laughs> so she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, right, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord God. <laughs> this is not the right response. But blessed be the Lord, maybe it is. Blessed be the Lord God who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. The Lord fought his battle, not him. And has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as wife. And she rose and bows her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also, here we go, sign up. He also took a Hinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. All right, let me just kind of tie up some loose ends here really quick. Because I, I don't want to lose the main side of this, but David ends up marrying Abigail. Her husband dies. 
right? Like he realizes like, oh my gosh, we're so close to death. What are we doing? Either way, his heart turns to stone. He dies 10 days later. David got his like, hey, awesome. She's a widow. I, she needs someone to take care of her. I got you. David marries Abigail. Remember, David's wife is now married to someone else. David also takes another woman, Ahinoam. Let me just point this out really quick. That was not wise of David. That was not good of David. He's actually disobeying Deuteronomy. The king shall not take multiple wives. He's doing that, taking multiple wives. This will start to be the downfall of David in many ways. And here's what I have to point out. Just because David listened to wisdom today, that doesn't guarantee he's going to listen to wisdom tomorrow. Just because you listen to wisdom today, it does not guarantee you're going to listen to wisdom tomorrow. Take it day by day. David, I think, obviously went too far. He crossed the line. He shouldn't have gone down this path. Let me point this out. And know him of Jezreel. She's actually the mom of someone named Amnon. That's David's son. David has a son named Amnon. Who's Amnon? Well, Amnon is going to rape his half-sister. My point of this is obviously through marrying this other woman, this was not good. This is actually the start of David's son Absalom hating David. This is like the downfall. Marrying this other woman, the second wife, it's a downfall. I'm just going to give you a little precursor to that. Not good. Not good. David did listen to wisdom in that moment that day, not the day after. Not good. Now, I have to just kind of point out that way. But here's what I want you to see. Salvation came to David at that time. This is actually very important. Salvation came to David. Destruction came to Nabal. See, her hospitality, her wisdom, it led to salvation. Now, just hear me out on this. David said something really profound, and she said something really profound. And I cannot move on from this. It's verse 33, verse 31 and 33. She, remember what she said? My Lord shall have no cause of grief. And then she says, for my Lord working salvation is himself. I don't want you to work salvation yourself. David picked up on this. Look at verse 33. He says, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. Why? Who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. This is the danger for all of us. I want salvation to come from me, my hand. I wanted to bring, I wanted to bring liberation, salvation by me attacking Abel and the serve. I wanted to bring salvation from, from me, from my hand. Remember, the Lord fights the battles. It's not me. There's a danger today in the church in some ways taking this idea where Paul says to the Galatians, he goes, that which began in the spirit, are you now trying to make perfect in the flesh? Like God saved you. God did this. Don't try to take salvation into your own hands. Don't try to take matters in your own hands. In some ways, we all have the capacity like David to want to say, I want to take matters into my own hands. I want salvation to come from me. I want to feel some sort of accomplishment. Salvation does not come from me. It comes from the Lord. It's what the book of Jonah says. Salvation is of the Lord. And David needed this reminder. He's like, I almost took this matter into my own hand. But it reminded me, salvation cannot come from my hand. It comes from the Lord. You could never save yourself. You could never have the capacity to save yourself. When you try to save yourself, you screw things up. Abigail came in and basically reminds him, salvation's from the Lord. David, you know this. Salvation's from the Lord. It does not come from your own hand. It comes from the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Her husband, it doesn't seem like he ever listened to Abigail. It doesn't seem like he appreciated her wisdom. He didn't go to her for advice. David, this whole situation, he was a fool. His servant says he doesn't listen to anyone. He's worthless. He's a fool. Notice this. Nabal is extremely wealthy and dies a fool. He's extremely wealthy and dies a fool. There is something in the Bible that really kind of promotes that idea sometimes. It's possible to be successful, to have wealth, and still be a fool. I'd say, especially in America, it's easy to make it, to do really good. People think you're wise. People think you're successful. But in reality, you're a fool if you die not knowing the Lord, if you die not obeying the Lord, if you die greedy, if you die unwise. Here's what I mean. When I read the story of Nabal dying a fool, he dies as a fool. He's partying, he has a huge feast, he dies as a fool. It obviously takes my mind to a parable Jesus told in Luke 12. And in Luke 12, Jesus talks about the rich fool. If you guys remember, he talks about the rich fool who wanted to build bigger barns. Let me just read to you this parable really quick in Luke chapter 12. I'll invite the worship team to come up. We'll end with this point. Luke 12, please read this with me. 
it says, the land, Jesus, here's the parable. Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I have so much crops. I have nowhere to store it. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? They're going to be someone else's. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, Nabal's stuff that he was so not willing to give away, he was not willing to give it away or share with David, it ends up being David's. Who will these things be? It ended up being David's. He dies, David marries his wife. It ended up being his anyways. My point of bringing this up is I don't want to be that rich. I don't want us to learn from this or I don't want us to not learn from this. Where you read a story and you go, think about it. What are you pursuing right now? You can be trying to build your whole life, be successful, make money, build bigger barns. Where do I put all my stuff? I know we'll build bigger barns. And he didn't even have a day to enjoy it. He's like, you fool. Don't you know that your life will be taken from you this day? Nabal had 10 more days. (laughs) But he was the rich fool who had it all, who lost it all. And this is not just for like this extremely wealthy people. This is so easy for us to be like, we're living our lives trying to work and attain, work and attain, work and attain, work and attain, but are we being rich toward God? He had an opportunity to be generous, to help someone in need, David, who helped him. He had an opportunity to be be generous and said he was greedy. He had an opportunity to be rich toward God, but he's rich toward himself and then he lost it all. You know, what would a man gain? What would a man do if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Like this is the story of Nabal. In a sense, like you had everything, you lost it all. It became someone else's. My thing for us, church, is let's learn from the Abigails, who basically says, you know what? I, I can help those in need. I can serve. I can be generous. I can be hospitable to the stranger. I, I can be wise in moments where the world, it's really hard to be wise. I want to retaliate evil for evil, but I'm going to be wise in this cultural moment. I'm going to exercise wisdom. I'm going to exercise hospitality. We can be the Nabal of the story. We can be the Abigail. I say, we need Abigails. When we see our friends kind of going astray, they're beginning to pursue like self-sabotage and you can intervene and saying, hey, hey, don't try to work salvation from your hand. What are you doing? You know this. You know God's with you. We need Abigail's to intervene and to save us from ourselves, right? I'd say, church, listen, let's learn from the Nabal. Let's learn from the Abigail. Let's learn from David. Let's say, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for saying the, the things I need to hear. I didn't want to hear that, but thank you. I received that. I don't want to be the rich fool who builds bigger barns and then just dies and leaves it. I want to be rich toward God. I want to live a heavenly inheritance. I actually want to live for things that matter, that have eternal matter and eternal weight. I'm going to be hospitable when the world is not being hospitable. I'm going to be wise when the world is being unwise. This is how we're going to bring transformation to our, our community in our moment. Yes, amen. Why don't we just stand really quick and just close our time by worshiping God, by saying, listen, if you want to know Jesus, this Jesus who saves, this Jesus who saves us from ourself, you can know this Jesus, and we'd love for you to know him. We just pray for you guys. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories that are so bizarre sometimes, and so out there, but yet have so much weight and truth. Lord, help us to be like you, Jesus. You are the example of hospitality, how you came to us, how you loved on us, how you went to the stranger and the foreigner, and you fed them, and you took care of them. And we just say, Jesus, thank you, that you are wise. Lord, we just say, there is no one like you. Help us just receive from you, become like you. And Lord, we just want to thank you, Jesus. Help us to build up things that have eternal weight, 
not build or have this stuff just to leave it all to someone else, but Lord, that we would build our treasures in heaven. So we thank you, Jesus. We just want to praise you in your name. Amen.